at Vanguard. This is more than just a retirement plan. This is your cappuccino date in Italy, the beach house with the matching bicycles. It's your rental car down memory lane and weekends reuniting with friends from over the years. This is the future you imagined, and Vanguard is here to help you build it. Because at Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. Discover the value of ownership at Vanguard.com. Fund shareholders own the funds that own Vanguard. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Today on the Zabecast, the Bronze Bomber feels the fury, a heavyweight fight that some people are saying proves that boxing is back. The Astros are stealing signs again, literally. And did we lose a war? No heckling? All that plus killing peacocks in Florida ought to be legal. Your bonus 45 minutes of me is locked and loaded, so buckle up and let's go! <laughs> Here we go! Wilder Fury 2, here we go. Oh. He puts it down! Fury scores the knockdown in round number three! He's definitely he doesn't look What was he just team. doing with his tongue right there? He said, I want to taste blood. Fury did it. He is the winner by way of technical knockout and the new WBC heavyweight champion of the world. The king has returned to the top of the throne. There it was, Monday, February 24th, 2020. Thank you for downloading. And yes, did you enjoy the fight? And can you not admit that Joe Tessator was the man for the moment? I don't know if Scott Lynn on Monday afternoon when uh, I join him on the Team 980 will at least admit that, yes, that is the right venue for Joe Tessitore. What a great call. What's he doing with his tongue? He's tasting blood. Tyson Fury dominates and knocks out his opponent, the Bronze Bomber, a.k.a. uh, Deontay Wilder, otherwise known as Deontay Wilder, uh, in seven rounds. In a bout that, if you saw it, and if you saw the highlights and if you read most accounts, uh, they were right to stop. His corner was right to throw in the towel in the seventh round. The numbers were pretty overwhelming. Fury landed more punches, 82 to 34. He landed more power punches, 58 to 18. And he threw more punches, 267 to 141. Also knocking down uh, Wilder twice in this fight en route to the seventh round, TKO. What a package he is in terms of a boxer, an entertainer, a trash talker, and a guy who can sing a cappella, bye bye Miss American Pie in the ring after the bout is over. It, 
It's a pretty remarkable combination for a heavyweight fighter, the likes of which we haven't seen in boxing in a long time. And he is maybe the greatest white boxing heavyweight in a long time. Apologies to the Klitschko brothers, who for a while there kind of had some people intrigued. Frankly, I don't care. White, black, it doesn't matter. Just give me a good, entertaining heavyweight. I'm one of those guys, and I'll readily admit that if it's a heavyweight fight, I'm into it. If it's not heavyweight, yeah, you're going to have to sell me a little bit harder when it comes to boxing. I know, makes me a casual fan, right? But then again, they broke records uh, both for live gate and I think pay-per-view, although maybe not total pay-per-view because uh, the uh, Canelo Alvarez Triple G match uh, got a lot of pay-per-view as well as the uh, Pacquiao Mayweather bout. But either way, I would have watched the fight if not for one simple, well, two simple things. One, I couldn't pin down when it was actually going to start. And I read a couple places online. I went to the actual, you know, fight, the the fight page that Fox Sports put up. It's like, here's the fight. Here's how you get it. Download our app, stream it, uh, pay for it, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, frequently asked questions. When is the fight? And the answer on the frequently asked questions was the fight is Saturday, February 22nd. And they gave no time. Now, I know that boxing uh, events, the time gets a bit fluid because some bouts go longer than others, et cetera, et cetera. I just think that they are these promoters are leaving money on the table because they're not willing to pin down a hard start time for the, for the title bout, for the main attraction. Even if it's as late as 10.30 or 11 p.m. East Coast time, on a Saturday night, if you tell me it's going to start at 11.03 and you start it within a couple minutes of 11.03, I'll plan for it. I'll, I'll make arrangements for it. The last thing I'm going to do, though, is say, well, should we buy it? Should we not buy it? When's it going to start? Come on over. Yeah, the romantic notion is you get a bunch of guys together. You have a fight night and you watch all the undercards and drink beer and you eat wings. and You're like, yeah, this is great. But a lot of us, well, we don't have friends or that much time to sit around and wait for a heavyweight fight to begin. I just don't know why they don't pin the time down. I don't know when it actually started. I was down at a bar in downtown Leesburg, Virginia, watching my good friend and radio colleague and podcast colleague, John Ronas, front for his weekend suburban garage band. Is it an insult to call his band a garage band? They may actually they may actually practice in a garage. Who knows? Someone's garage. But they're they're a weekend band. Like like a lot of adults have, you know? And not a lot of adults. Like exist in a lot of places. Your weekend cover band. Might do a wedding, might do a bar. They're playing for beer money, and that's about it. I went to go see him, and I had plans to then go from that bar. All the way up to my boy One Account Rhodes' house uh, in far western exurban Maryland. And then I was just like, I, I don't like, Johnny, you want to go get the fight? He's like, Yeah, but I got nobody else that wanted to come over tonight. And I said, All right, well, maybe you and I can split it. And then he's like, Yeah, but it's $80. And I'm like, <laughs> $80? 
I thought fifty nine ninety five for the really big fights, and that this one might have been that sixty dollar threshold. And again, I know you're going to say, "Whoa, Mister Moneybag, suddenly getting short with your hands in your wallet, huh?" It's a principled thing. At some point, eighty bucks felt like a egregious ripoff, especially when it was only just me and my boy one account roads. So the combination of not knowing exactly when it was going to start and the price dissuaded me from getting the fight, and I regret it. Of course, when you buy a fight that sucks, and then you're like, that's it, I'm never buying this again. Like the long-awaited Pacquiao Mayweather fight sucked the biggest suck that ever sucked to suck. And then you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to get duped again. Ah, these, you know, these promoters, they just want to, they want to steal my money. Of course they do. But in this case, they actually delivered a hell of a fight. So what is next? First of all, both fighters had a clause in their contract that said that they would be entitled to a rematch or a third installment of this series. And that's how every boxing promoter dreams of the three fight series with each fighter winning one, and then you set up the rubber match in Roman numeral three. They both have a clause for this, and uh, Wilder afterwards said he was fine, it just wasn't his night, and he wants a rematch for sure, but some of the fight game are saying, well, we may have to wait a bit on this because I'm not sure of the appetite given how much how badly Wilder was dominated by Fury in this fight. So... We'll see what happens next. I don't know most of the fighters that they're talking about. I could read them off of this article with my highlighting. Does that make me sound smart? Anthony Joshua could be the next opponent for Wilder. Um, If uh, Joshua exercises his right... uh, I'm sorry. uh, The winner of the rematch would get a higher percentage of the fighter's portion of the revenue, but Wilder, as Saturday's loser, can delay a potential Fury versus Joshua unification bout if he exercises his right to a third fight. But this isn't likely to be what the boxing community favors. I don't even know what the community means. Oh, you know, I'm I'm Roger Goodell, and I I know about the issues in the community. When the story says this isn't likely to be what the boxing community favors, does that mean the promoters and the fighters and the trainers and the TV networks? Or is it the boxing community like people on Reddit threads and message boards? Or people that are willing to pay another... $80 for a fight. Because Wilder was beaten so definitively, it appears the public outcry is for Fury versus Joshua now, even if that means Kubrat Pulev steps aside and doesn't face the latter as planned this summer. Yeah, I was going to have a big fight night between Joshua and Pulev, so that might be off. The other heavyweights they're mentioning, I'm I'm looking at their photos. This Andy Ruiz guy with the giant tattoo on his chest, I mean, he looks terribly out of shape <laughs> and was criticized uh, for being as much the last time he fought. Wilder is no longer a world champion, which means he doesn't have to fight a top contender immediately. He and his camp could opt to put him in the ring with some lesser-known competition in hopes of replenishing the hype machine and repairing some of the confidence he may have lost in Saturday's bout. Wilder may only have a plan A to lean on, but that base approach is still more than most opponents can handle. The money that these guys got was insane. Wilder made $28 million 
I think that was the guarantee, as a matter of fact. And according to this story on Forbes.com, that uh, the live ticket gate in Nevada set a new record. There have been larger live gates in terms of total dollars in other parts of the world, but for Nevada and Las Vegas, uh, the $17 million plus they sold for live tickets is a new record. Both men made a guaranteed $28 million, not bad for one night, and they got to, they're going to split the other revenue generated from the fight 50-50. This apparently was a unique collaboration between ESPN and Fox Sports with their over-the-top app-based delivery of heavyweight fights, or at least all boxing fights and other combat sports. Net-net, it was a good night for boxing. Net, 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 I wish I had friends that could get together and have a fight night. And I wish that I wasn't such a baby about, well, when's it going to start? Hey, you know what? Get to your buddy's house by 9 o'clock. Start pounding beers. And then when the fight's on, the fight's on. Pussy. Hey, wait, was that was that me saying that? The second best story of the weekend, and maybe it was actually the best story of the weekend, was the e-bug win for David Ayers and the Carolina Hurricanes. Wait, what? E-bug? Yes, emergency backup goalie. This is one of the great Cinderella wrinkles that still exists in big-time professional sports. And there's not a lot of these, but this is one. In hockey, and if you know this already, bear with me. I'm going to assume some listeners out there don't know this. In hockey, teams dress two goaltenders for each game, and that's usually more than enough. But usually once a season, a team will have both goaltenders get hurt, and therefore they are out of goaltenders. And they really can't just tell one of the other skaters, hey, put on the pads, get in there, and do your best. I'm sure someone on the regular skating roster could do okay, but the skates for goaltenders are entirely different or not entirely, but they're substantially different than a skater's pair of skates, and they've got different pads and everything else. So what the NHL does is they have a guy designated for every team who is the emergency backup goaltender, or E-bug. What is this guy? He is a guy that knows how to play goalie, probably played it professionally or at least collegiately at a high level, and is in the building at all times for the team in order to possibly suit up in case he's needed. I know, it sounds crazy, right? Well, it got crazier in Toronto over the weekend. David Ayres, A-Y-R-E-S, was sitting in the stands as the emergency backup goalie with his wife at the Scotiabank Arena when Hurricanes starting goalie James Reimer went down with an injury. So the on-call emergency netminder was told, okay, just go ahead and get halfway into your gear in case something happens to Carolina's backup, Peter Morozik. Something happened. Midway through the second, uh, Ayers noticed his cell phone started to blow up. What he didn't realize was that Morozik had been hurt in a scary collision with Leafs forward Kyle Clifford and was down on the ice. Get in, kid. You're playing goalie for us. Now think about this, a guy who's never been in the NHL, getting to get there, get his... Get his pads on, play the game in a real game. So he gets in there, 
and is told by the rest of the Carolina Hurricanes, you know what, just do your best, have fun, don't worry about this. Ayers allowed goals in the first two shots he faced. Oh, no. But then he settled down, and he stopped the next eight shots in a suffocating defensive performance by Carolina as they rallied for a stunning 6-3 win over the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, in case that's not a good enough story for you, Ayers got paid 500 bucks to play the game. He gets to keep his jersey. Carolina has already put out a bunch of T-shirt jerseys or jerseys to commemorate his accomplishment. And on top of all that, this is a guy in Ayers who had a kidney transplant 15 years ago and wasn't sure if he'd ever play hockey again. He's been a practice goalie with the Leafs and the club's American Hockey League affiliate, the Toronto Marlies, for the last eight years. So what's interesting is that he's the they only have one e-bug per building, and that e-bug may play for either team in case of emergency. It's almost like break glass, use goalie in case of emergency. Kidney transplant was there for the other team, gets in net, gives up the first two goals, and then settles down and gets a win. How great is that? He's a native of Whitby, Ontario. And even though he's faced shots from professional players on an almost daily basis, being in a real NHL game has got to be fill your pants or fill your pads with mud type nervousness, which he said he was. Came into the locker room afterwards, heroes round of applause from the rest of the Carolina Hurricanes and a story that he will be boring his grandkids with until the end of time. Oh, Grandpa, am I going to hear the story of you playing goalie again? Imagine if this sort of wrinkle, this Cinderella wrinkle existed elsewhere in sports, like an emergency kicker in the NFL. Be unlikely, but maybe. Uh you would think that in the NHL, we might say, we're going to do away. Someday, someone may say, we're going to do away with the e-bug. We're just going to say, look, if you have two goalies who get hurt, that's it. And you can either forfeit at that point, or you can play with six skaters and take your chances. Hope somebody lurks back by the net and stops some shots or whatever you want to do. I hope they never do that. Please, God, don't ever do that. The e-bug wrinkle is one of the best. And e-bug appearances are very rare. E-bug wins are even better. And then you add on top of it that he won the game for the visiting team, kidney transplant, and oh, by the way, his full-time job for the most part there at the games is driving the Zamboni. Sports, you cannot make that shit up. Of all the bits that I used to do on the radio and I've sort of retired a bunch of them or maybe just got bored. By the way, they're all the same. They're all just a variant of one one or two basic hooks or concepts. But one of the ones people say, why don't you bring this? You know, why, how come you don't do this? Might be a dumb question. I probably should because I have some dumb questions, legitimate dumb questions that I have to, uh, I have to get out there. I, I know I could Google these. I could do my own research. But why do my own research? Someone out there probably knows. You people, what do you mean you people? You wonderful listeners, you are 
my Google. You are my research. You may know things even beyond just what a Google search would tell me about these specific questions. So with that said, uh, this, by the way, this first, this might be a dumb question came from me seeing the movie 1917 with my wife on Friday night. My wife's first war movie since Saving Private Ryan. I want to congratulate her for that. She got through it. Uh, it was not too gory. It was a little bit grim, obviously, with the dead bodies floating around and whatnot, but uh, not too bad. So, by the way, the movie, let me give you a quick mini review. I didn't like the fact that one of the big twists in the plot was unrealistic. I know. They went to such incredible lengths, the the, the filmmakers to make this thing realistic and to make it unique. I mean, they didn't use any artificial lighting. They waited for just the right light every day on set. They built these trenches uh, in an empty cornfield to make it look realistic. I mean, the, the level of expense put in, and then you have this the main twist, and I won't spoil it. I'm like, no, come on, that doesn't... Not only is that not realistic from a physics standpoint, but it was stupid. Like, well, why, why would he do that? Okay, that was my only complaint. I thought it was tremendous, the detail and what it felt like and what you got a sense of. Holy shit, World War I. What a shitty war that was. They're all terrible, but World War I was the worst. So what, we just dug a trench and we stayed in it for weeks and months at a time and then when we felt like we could gain a few miles of land, we'd go run up and build a new trench. Is that it? Yep. That's pretty much it. Ugh. Horrible. So that said, the movie was good. I wouldn't say it was great. Great. It was like Dunkirk. Dunkirk had more of a story to it and it was pretty well done, but it just... I don't know. It didn't really grab me the whole time. 1917 also didn't fill me with that sort of, oh shit, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, because I kind of knew what was going to happen in the end. You never really knew what was going to happen with Saving Private Ryan, and there was more story to that movie than there was story to this movie. So, good movie. I'm glad I saw it in the theater, but here's my question. All right, this might be a dumb question. My wife and I get in there, and we are one of only two couples to see the movie. A third couple or two dudes came in to join us. So it was six people in the theater on a Friday night at 9.40 p.m. Okay, great. We go into the theater and we're just, you know, walking around. We're there way, way too early. And for on a lark, I went up to the very front row of the movie theater and sat down to watch a minute of the previews as if, okay, I bought a ticket. I'm going to I'm going to look straight up at the, at, the, at the movie screen. Question. This might be a dumb question. Why do they even put those seats in there? I've never seen anybody buy a ticket to watch them. This is not, excuse me, this is not 1978. And Star Wars is out and it's a nationwide sensation and movie theaters are sold out left and right. And people are like, okay, fuck it. I'm two inches from the screen. I got to look up like this. But I, you know what? I can't. That's Princess Leia. That's it's great. It's a great movie. Why do they put those seats in there? Are they required to? Is it because the movie theater exhibition industry wants seats in, seats in there to make you think? 
that somebody might be crazy enough to watch a whole movie literally just four feet in front of a 45 foot high screen. I, I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, that was a dumb question from the movie. Other dumb questions. Why do airplanes make you put your window shade up upon landing? I, is it that the pilot's going to look around and, and look behind them and go, hey, I can't see uh, if there's somebody coming up on my blind spot. Your window shade is down. Is it so that <laughs> onlookers on the ground can see your horrified faces in case the plane catches fire at the last second? And you're like, ah, we're going to die. Yeah, we want to make sure everyone can see that. There might be a guy with a camcorder there. Might catch your expression. Make sure that that, that window shade is up. Is it because on the ground, the ground's crew wants the window shades up because that is the default position? And is that, are they just too lazy to do that themselves? I don't know. And then finally, this might be a dumb question. Whatever happened to Google Glass? You know, those glasses with the camera in them that was going to revolutionize the world and there was actually some municipalities that were banning and some businesses that were banning people wearing Google Glass like Holy shit, you're filming with your eyeglasses. No, I'm not going to put up with that. Did it? Is it still in existence? Uh, if you had a pair of Google glasses, are they a collector's item now? Are they like a DeLorean? Is it like the DeLorean of tech? Is it like owning a uh, Apple Newton device where you're like, ah, look at this thing. It totally sucked and went nowhere. But I got one. I got one of the original ones. Still works. How come nobody's come up with a second gen Google class? Just all dumb questions. If anyone knows the answers, you know where to hit me up. Zabe at yahoo.com. In golf, Patrick Reed wins in Mexico at the World Golf Championships. Uh, the WGC event, limited field, only the best players, the top 30, 50, whatever the shortened field it is. Uh, big money and Big event, star players, great leaderboard on Sunday. He beats Bryson DeNerdbo, um, who was not money down the stretch. He had eight birdies at one point, DeChambeau did, uh, in the round, and seemingly was walking away with it, and then <coughs> choked down the stretch. He had one of the worst birdie attempts I think I've seen from a tour player on 18. Uh, actually, was it a birdie attempt or a par attempt? Either way, I think it was a birdie. Bottom line is he three putted eighteen or seventeen as well. This was crazy. If I can get golf nerdy for a second, seventeens is par three, and the pins tucked left near the water. Okay, woo! But they're hitting gap wedges in there, pitching wedges and gap wedges in there. It's a, it's only like a hundred and thirty-five yard hole. It's just a little tiny par three, and these guys are pros. And they hit timid shots that end up, you know, sucking back and going 30 feet from the hole where me as a 10 handicap, if I hit a weak ass shot like that and on a short par three and it's way far away from the pin, I'm not going to say I'm going to smash my club, but I'd be like, you pussy, you can hit a better shot than that. It's a pitching wedge for God's sakes. Golf is hard, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Even the best players in the world. You're like, really? That was the best you could do? Patrick Reed on 18 hits iron off the tee just to keep it in play. It's a nice short par four. Up! Big old flare into the trees has to punch out. Still one by one because he had a two-shot lead. Okay. So DeChambeau choked. Uh, my golf goons, including big Mikey O'Neill and 
Getter and company were texting me during the round and they were like, I don't think you should be able to anchor your putter against your arm, which is what DeChambeau does. DeChambeau, of course, stands very upright and with his arms locked and he's trying to basically emulate the Iron Byron putter machine that they test putters on, where it's just simple one plane back and forth, back and forth. And he is a very good putter for the most part, but it's not foolproof. And this comes a week after my boy Big Mike was screaming and railing, just wouldn't shut up about Adam Scott anchoring his putter. They're like, you're not allowed to anchor. I know he's got it against his chest. I just know it. And I'm like, you don't know if it's against his chest. And I'm like, besides, he's so terrible as a putter. Let him anchor it every now and then. I was happy to see Adam Scott win. He's one of my favorite players. But it got to the point of cheating in golf and talking about what is cheating, what's not cheating. Patrick Reed in the Bahamas cheated like a motherfucker. I mean, I saw, can I say that on my podcast? Well, let me see. Uh, yes, I can. That's why you're here for the occasional expletive. Sorry for the kids in the car. Um, he, he, he was shoveling sand out of the way. I guess at the time, because it was during football season, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks like a viol- that looks like a rules penalty, but okay, it's a stupid event. And, you know, in the Bahamas, it's 18 guys, guaranteed money, big deal. Cheating, big time cheating. And of course, Peter Costas recently said he has seen other instances where, you know, Patrick Reed definitely improved his lie. He this week, Patrick Reed said, I'm not talking about other, that other stuff. You know, I'm just here. I'm going to let my clubs do the talking. I'm not talking about anything that happened back in March. Because, of course, the press wants to keep bringing this up and they want to get his reaction to what uh, Brooks Kepka said uh, in an interview as part of the pre PGA hype. Asking, you know, what did you think of uh, Patrick Reed? Did he cheat? And Brooks Kepka said, yeah, he cheated. Patrick Reed's like, I'm not talking about any of it. He cheated in the Bahamas. He's probably cheated before. But I don't think that anchoring your putter against your arm, which is what DeChambeau does, or using a long putter like Adam Scott, but making sure to not anchor it, even though it may be touching your shirt a little bit and you can't quite tell. This is something that... Uh, Bernard Langer has been softly accused of as he mops up on the senior circuit for year after year after year. I said to my golf nerds, I'm like, if it was cheating, everyone would do it. And if it was if it was really effective, then guess what? Putting would be easy and these guys, quote unquote, cheating would lead the tour in putting. It's not. You still have to have the nerves, the imagination, and the trust and the mental fortitude to roll that stupid ball online at the right speed when everything is in play. And that's never going to change. So Patrick Reed, your winner, uh, and maybe he's going to fuel, maybe he's going to feed off of this negative energy and have a monster year. We shall see. Not cheating, though. I do believe the USGA probably should put in a, a, uh, a height limit for putters, a length limit. That I could get behind. They do have a limit on driver length, which they put in years ago. They could do the same thing for putters. They should have done the same thing, and that would have solved the anchoring. You make putters a maximum of 40 inches, you're not going to really be able to anchor that against your chest unless you're bent way the hell over. Okay, that's five minutes of golf talk you'll never get back. Five minutes of your life you'll never get back if you don't like golf. But hey, maybe you don't like boxing. Maybe you don't like hockey and goalie talk. Maybe there's another podcast you'd like to go to right now. If you want to leave, there's the door. But I'm not done yet.
All right, quick couple things, and then we're out of here today. Astros stealing signs again. <laughs> I know, I'm not the first one to use this little twist of words. Technically, they're not stealing signs from the pitcher and the catcher, and technically it's not the Astros doing it, but on the first weekend of spring training play, fans that were at the Astros-Nats game down in Florida, some Nats fans brought signs that had asterisk strows. Houston asterisk strows. The signs were confiscated. I'm sorry, but as Homer Simpson once famously said, did we lose a war? Apparently the policy is hecklers are going to be uh, kicked out if they are heckling the Astros over cheating. Even if they're not using vulgar language, even if they are not necessarily disrupting those people around them. This is crazy. That you can't do this. This I at least you shouldn't be able to do this. So you come, you show up with an Oscar the Grouch t-shirt, and he's wearing an Astros uniform and he's in a big trash can. They're gonna kick you out of the ballpark for that? How much heckling are you allowed to do? Gentle heckling? A little bit of teasing heckling? I mean, this is crazy. I understand you don't want boorish vulgarity ruining the experience for other people. But uh, this is just seemingly nuts. Where is my, did we lose a war? Good prep again. I knew I had this here. HS. Oh, yeah, not even Mexico. That's what it is. Here we go. Not even Mexico. Got it. Did we lose a war? Thank you, Homer. That's not America. That's not even Mexico. You know, if you took a minute, you could have all these bites lined up. I know I know, I could, but I have other shit to do. Okay. Anyway, I don't know how the rest of the season is going to play out, but if baseball really is going to eject people for a mere sign that says Astros with an asterisk or whatever, it's, it's going to be a long season. I think somebody tweeted me saying... Um, yeah, it just means I'm going to have to buy more tickets and move <laughs> move around a lot. Somebody else tweeted over the weekend, isn't it funny that the most severely punished person other than A.J. Hinch and Jeff Lunau in baseball's eyes were the girls that flashed their tatas in the World Series, that they got harsher punishments than any of the players? I don't know if you've noticed, and I don't know if you care, but I'm less and less active on Twitter all the time. Yes, there's the little birdie right there. Oh, I still have my account at Zabe. I still have some 53,000 followers. Hey, how about about that? I know. But I've become so disillusioned with it in a number of ways. First of all, it represents the most grave threat to one's career, livelihood, and earnings you could possibly have. It's insane how dangerous Twitter is for people like me and others that are public figures that are in the opinion business. That's number one. Number two, Twitter now says they're going to start flagging posts or tweets that may have uh, harmfully misleading angles to them. (laughs) Harmfully misleading. So playfully misleading, no harmfully misleading, they're going to start trying to police them. This is what Facebook has been doing for a while now, and that's why I quit Facebook a long time ago. Also, the thing about Twitter is, man, I know when I'm in my zone and I'm tweeting, I got some good zingers. I've put out some good content there. 
I put out some original stuff. I mean, am I as good as Rex Chapman? No. But he he just steals his stuff off the internet. He just looks for viral stuff. It's not like he's creating all those videos. He's just passing them along. He did invent block versus charge, which is pretty cool. Anyway, my point is, I'm on two radio shows every day for three hours a day in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the morning and then Washington, D.C. at night. And I'm also, I also have a podcast, which you're listening to right now. I mention on all these various outlets my Twitter handle all the time. And I haven't gone back to look, but I know for a fact my Twitter following has been stuck at around the fifty-one to 53,000 mark ever since I was no longer on national radio. Now you might say, well, that's, hey, Al Baldo, welcome to the downside of your career. It's only going to get worse from here. It's possible that that is the peak of my popularity, but it just defies common sense in my way of thinking that I'm not seeing at least a steady 3% minimum, 3% growth rate year over year, which, okay, you ready for some math? Here we go. Let's say I got 50,000 even, and I'm at 3%. That's 1,500 new followers a year. Over the last five years, even at a modest 3% growth, just because I'm putting out good zingers, I'm mentioning my Twitter handle on the air every day for six hours a day, uh, you would think that you know uh, 1,500 per year over five years, you ready? Math, 57,000. I should be approaching 60,000 right now. Of course, who knows how many of my followers are actually bots or fake. I haven't bought any, uh, just for the record. I would never spend a dime on that. And I would get rid of Twitter entirely except for the fact that it, A, is useful at times, and B, I hate it that other employers and advertisers look at that like it's a fucking scoreboard that actually matters, and it doesn't. Oh, and they don't pay me a dime for any of the shit I put out there. It's the worst deal going in media. Hey, uh, get out of there, interact with your fans, uh, say some funny stuff, but not too funny or not too harsh because, you know, that could get you fired. Oh, and we're going to pay you nothing for this. Zero, zilch, nada. It's possible that I have been identified. First of all, I'm not a blue check mark. Maybe if I applied for the blue check mark, that would help increase my numbers. I don't know. But it's possible that because of political-leaning tweets from years ago, because I've steered clear of that for quite a while now, I've been identified by the Twitter police as, yes, one of those undesirables, a conservative, if not libertarian-leaning right-winger. And if if you don't believe and don't understand how they are doing this stuff and suppressing these kind of voices, then you're not paying attention. But I'm not even one of those voices. That's the thing. I've, I've, I've shot away from that for a long time. It, there's just no growth there. And there's no revenue there. So I've kind of taken the approach of, well, you know, what am I doing exactly? And too often I feel like I need to tweet to prove I'm watching something. And that to me is the dumbest thing ever. And I sense that there's probably some bosses out there thankfully none of mine, that would be haranguing their hosts. Hey, man, this is a big game. Why aren't you tweeting about it? Because, you know, I don't watch every fucking game. This just in. No, you know, I know this is going to ruin your image of me, but I don't, especially on the weekends. I really have to shut it down because I go so hard Monday through Friday. I've got to kind of, okay, step back, take a break. But when I am watching something like the second half of the Maryland-Ohio State game, 
I'm like, oh, I should probably tweet something right now because in the back of my mind, I think this will prove to people I'm watching the game. Now, I don't watch Maryland basketball games every time they're on. I watch what I can when I can. But I've uh, watched far fewer games than many of my colleagues. It is what it is. But why should I tweet to then prove to anybody I'm watching something? Ah, it's all just such a racket. It's got me thinking about YouTube. I see YouTubers that I follow, and I'm like, man, this guy's doing pretty good. I remember a couple months ago, he was only at like 20,000 you know, subscribers. He's now up to like 50,000. Maybe I should start a YouTube channel. Or is it the same sucker's game? At least on YouTube, you do get paid. But they make you jump through a ton of hoops to do it. And there are that there's the risk of being demonetized if you get flagged. And I've seen way too many YouTubers do their, I can't believe I've been demonetized and this is rigged. That game is rigged as well. But it seems like if I'm putting time out there, effort into, you know, decent content and putting myself out there, I just want to feel like I'm growing something. I feel like with Twitter, it's just sitting there. They're coming for the combine. Oh, you knew this was going to happen, right? First, they came for the draft. Now they're coming for the combine. Articles have already popped up as the combine in the NFL begins on Monday. The underwear Olympics, the most ridiculous thing that is overcovered and overanalyzed in all of sports, without a doubt. It's been in Indianapolis for as long as they've had it. And now some cities are like, hey, we got a we got an empty football stadium that's indoors that could do this thing. Why don't we have it? Because that's what happened with the draft. New York City had it good for a long time. They're like, ah, we'll have it. We got ballrooms here. We got Radio Radio City Music Hall. Well, yeah, come on. Other cities are like, well, we can do this too. We want it. So it's an NFL-branded event. We'll take it. They're coming for the combine. Already people, I think Jim Mercy said, tradition should count for something. We want to keep the combine. Good folks in Indianapolis. It's a great venue for it because it's easy and easy out. Sort of central location, at least east coastish central location of Indiana. And a good facility. Uh, yeah, is it lovely in February in Indianapolis? No. No, it's not. It's not lovely many places in this country in February. But hey, we're not there for it to be lovely. We're there to watch grown-ass men in their underwear run the 40-yard dash and bench press. Speaking of which, they're going to add 16 new drills for the combine. 16 new drills. Um, I'm going to come up with, and this is where you can start thinking for tomorrow's radio shows. Send me, if you don't mind, a sampling. Doesn't have to be 16 in total, but how about a handful? 16 drills that would be useful in determining a man combine. In other words, 16 things that you should be tested on doing. Can you chug a beer? Can you change a flat tire? Do you know how to un... Do you know how to get somebody else's entertainment system, their TV and their cable box, untangled, press the right buttons, check to make sure if things are connected? (laughs) That'd be one of my drills for a man combine. It's like, okay, go. You're in a weird living room. Turn on the TV. Get ESPN. Go. You're like, okay, uh, see the TV's not turning on. Okay. All right. I got, I got three or four remotes here. That doesn't work. Uh, okay. Uh, let's go back to the TV. First of all, is it plugged in? Okay. Is the HDMI going? All right. Let's get the TV on. That to me is an essential male skill. 
Also, can you grill certain cuts of meat correctly? Show that you can do that. We should get a man combine. Ooh, that'd be a good promotion. Man combine, get all these different activities, time people in them. That'd be fun. Hey, you know what? If Indianapolis loses the real combine, then we could actually have the Zabe man combine in Indianapolis as a replacement. Let's end on this today. I think you should be able to kill peacocks legally if you catch them in Florida. Apparently, according to a story I read this weekend, peacocks, yes, the big, beautiful birds that you see usually only in zoos. I don't think that's the noise they make. These peacocks are harassing residents in certain neighborhoods in Miami, Florida, leaving giant pyramids of slimy poop and swooping down, harassing pedestrians and leaving a screech that is apparently ear-splitting. Peacocks do not sound beautiful like, look at my plumage. Apparently they are disgusting, noisy, and now they're getting aggressive. I don't know why if a peacock comes close enough to harass you, you can't tackle it and snap its neck. You know, this is the this is the law of the jungle. This is the the rules of the wild. If you're a dangerous enough animal, we should stay away from you, which we do. Bears, alligators, you name it. Snakes, people usually stay away from them. But if 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 a animal that really could get its ass kicked wants to come up to you and act all tough, like, eh, I'm going to attack, fuck you, peacock. Bam, neck snap, done, see you later. Especially if there's so many of them, which apparently there are now in the wild, that they're not even endangered. Sure, you'd feel like kind of an asshole snapping the neck of a peacock, which its beautiful plumage would then just, everyone around you on the street would be like, what the hell did you just do, man? What's wrong with you, you psycho? Hey, man, it attacked me. It attacked me, it was making loud noises, and I thought it was going to poop on my shoes. So it got what it was coming. Got what, it, got, got, it, got what it was deserved. Maybe this will teach other peacocks. Hey, you know, us humans, we're not just your bitch, okay? You know your role. You know your place in this world, you big, stupid-looking, big-plumaged birds. You look pretty, you stay up in the tree branches, and we'll leave you alone. You come attack us, come at the king. Like Tyson Fury, you better be ready to take out the king. All right, that'll be a wrap for today. Thank you for downloading. Remember to download the ZabeCast app. It is absolutely free. Subscribe to Friday's edition of this podcast. It's not free, but it's cheap. It's 1.8 cents per day. I've calculated it. Rate and review so our algorithmic overlords bless our crops in this podcast. And hell, tell a friend who likes just good things in their ear, as I like to say. Have a great Monday, and we will see you tomorrow. Hello, Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it cash back match. Now to recap and say cash back one more time. We match all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover, exceptionally common sense. 
Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. Hear that? Is that America cheering or a sausage patty sizzling to perfection? It's time to cheer for Egg McMuffin and fresh cracked eggs at McDonald's. It's time to wake up to the aroma of freshly baked biscuits and treat yourself to a real honest-to-goodness morning meal. Breakfast, it's on at McDonald's. Now get any breakfast sandwich for just two bucks. Available only through the app. Mobile order and pay available at participating McDonald's. McD app download and registration required.